Um, all right, so traditional Thanksgiving message, Philippians 2.14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. I'm going to read Philippians 2.14-16, all one sentence. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So, what is one of the ways that you shine forth and holding forth the word of life that makes you stick out different from the world is that you are not murmuring and complaining. And those who are here at our prayer service, I mentioned this was going to be the message this morning, and I'm not jumping on y'all's feet this morning. I'm thoroughly jumping on my own after this week. <laughs> um, so don't take it personal, but it's all going to be true. It's from words God, so take it and run with it. But you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. So, when we murmur and we have disputes, we then are blameworthy and we cause harm, not acting as the children of God ought to, right? You're acting like the children of the world without rebuke. We're worthy of rebuke when we do that. I'm worthy of rebuke when I do that. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, that will be the pattern that you see. You don't believe me? Go on Facebook. That wonderful abode of cheerful optimism and encouragement. Everyone now has a megaphone to spout how that server did me wrong or how they left out that fork in my to-go cup. And I'm going to go... You get the idea. On everything under the sun, you have a forum there and in every other place with your little smart devices to murmur and complain. So what's our standard? Don't! Right? What's the opposite of thanksgiving? Murmuring and complaining. <laughs> Disputing. Right? Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain neither labored in vain. All right, so Apostle Paul writing to these Philippians, he wanted them to live out their Christian witness in all aspects. Even in this one, which we're all prone to failure. <laughs> but it's still the standard. And we need to be reminded of it and not be content to waller in the mud. Okay? Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. We jump in mid-thought and we'll figure it out where we're at in a minute. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. All right, that sounds scary. 
You go back to verse 1 of this chapter. He's using the Old Testament saints and the natural nation of Israel as an illustration, as an example. Moreover, brethren, we would not have you be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were examples to us. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as were some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So we're in, we're in the final age. We're just waiting for Christ to come back. And so you have the Old Testament. Why do we read it? Well, here's one good reason. It's written for our admonition for our examples. And so you've got lusting, you've got idolatry, you've got fornication. You look at all those and go, that sounds really bad. It is. Tempting God. No, we shouldn't do that. Which one of them we tend to put on a little lower pedestal for us? Murmuring. (laughs) Murmuring. All these things are written for our admonition, for our example, so we can learn from them. So let's learn from them. We're going to go back to Exodus. and We may not not flip to everyone. I'm going to do some high-level summaries. Um, But we're going to follow the children of Israel for a little ways. And we're going to look at some of these examples. I'm going to read a a quotation from one of my expanded word dictionaries. I was looking up that word murmuring. It says, A danger threatens when God's people allow their own desires and cravings to shape their expectations and are not content with what God promises and gives. When we allow our own desires and cravings to shape our expectations, right? expectations, what we think should happen. You want to have a good marriage lesson? Get on the same page about expectations. If y'all are both expecting the same thing, you can avoid a whole lot of fights. When our desires and cravings shape our expectations and are not content with what God's promises, what is promised, and what he gives. There's a danger. Okay? So when you murmur, you are expressing dissatisfaction. Right? Reasonable? Mm-hmm. 
who are you dissatisfied with? That's the part you don't like to think about out loud. You're expressing dissatisfaction with God. Therefore, you are criticizing God. Y'all uncomfortable? Me too. <laughs> so when you murmur against God, in essence, you're claiming God has done you wrong or failed to do something that you would expect. He's failed to give you something that you think is right. You're just due. Well, if God has done you wrong, whose standard are you judging him by? Your own! And so in this scenario, who have you allowed to become the boss and who's the servant? You got it exactly backwards. Right? God's sovereign. He's in charge. He doesn't answer to anyone. We're the servant. Okay? So in Exodus chapter 15, set your stage, God has heard the cry of his people. They're in Egypt. They're having a terrible, terrible time. They were in severe affliction. I mean, not just hard work, but I mean, they started with hard work and they got worse and worse and worse from there. When Moses was born, there was a decree upon the land of any male child to be born had to be slain. Chunk him in the river. Technicality, Moses' mama technically did put him in the river. Uh-huh. Put him in a basket, made it watertight, and then set it right there in the reeds so it wouldn't go anywhere, and they had a sister watching it until it was picked up. But she complied eventually, right? Can you imagine how awful that would be to have your little boy that you carried for nine months to have someone come and destroy him. This is awful. They are crying out to God, God, deliver us! And after a long, 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 long time, right? Moses is 80 before he gets sent back. Um, God answers their prayer. How many Israelites died in the battle to flee Egypt? Zero! How many swords were lifted up? Zero! How many in the Egyptian army survived the encounter in the Red Sea? Zero. Y'all ever heard of a modern day war where one army loses nobody and the other one is completely wiped off? Doesn't happen. It can't happen when you have human means, right? Were they brought out of Egypt by their own might, power, intellect, cunning, no, the whole thing is God's like, I'm going to demonstrate my power, my might, my arm. I'm going to bring you out by a strong hand. And just to make sure everyone gets the full picture, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart some. Pharaoh hardened his own heart some, but if you look, there are some words. It was God doing the hardening. If no, no, this is not over. I'm going to show you the full spectrum that I intended. Okay? And so in chapter 15, we're now on the other side of the Red Sea. We're really happy. Like, we were... We didn't know if we were going to make it because we were trapped. On the other side, we were trapped. The the land had closed them in. They were boxed in. You had the enemy behind, nowhere to flee, and the sea at your back. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to die. At least that's what they thought, right? God told them, go forward. And he opens a path, or there hadn't been a path, holds it open for every single one of his people, hinders the army as they're trying to get across, and then crushes it down and drowns them all. all right? 
God did that, right? That's that's amazing. Can you can you imagine being on the seashore watching that? You don't even have to be an Israelite. Just you're a fisherman. <laughs> what? I mean, that's the strongest army. I mean, this is this is this is like superpower back in the day. Egypt was not small fish here. Whoa. Okay. God's powerful. Yeah. And can you imagine the joy and elation of the people of Israel? I mean, yeah, I mean, they're on the other side. They're singing. They're singing a happy dance, right? Moses' song. And so, chapter 15, then sang Moses and the children this song unto the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. He hath thrown the horse and his rider. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Can you imagine picking up one horse and chucking him in the sea? That'd be rather difficult. <laughs> He brought the sea to there. It's just all of them. Like this is, whoa! The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will prepare him a habitation, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Yeah! The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They're excited. Everybody's singing. I mean, he is thoroughly put the... I mean, go to verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? You know, any old gods in Egypt? Y'all got a bunch of them. Any y'all stand up to this? Who's like this? Nobody. Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, and the earth swallowed them. I mean, just elation. They're recognizing what God did. How powerful He is. Thou in Thy mercy hast led forth the people which Thou hast redeemed. Who, who led them forth? God did, right? In His mercy. He's redeemed them. Thou hast guided them in Thy strength unto Thy holy, holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Those that are in Canaan already, yeah, they're going to hear about this. News travels. Right, this is like PB Grapevine on steroids. Like they're gonna know. God, their God gave them our land, and He just opened the sea to send them. I mean, and they're on the way. Ah! Right? People are gonna be scared. Okay. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. They've guided them in thy strength. Who are they, who are they giving all the credit to? God. They doing good? Yes. They just saw this wonder. They've been just spared. This is great. Wow. Fast forward three days. Verse 20. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. Shur is apparently a city somewhere in Egypt, so there's kind of the borderland there, but they're out in the, the desert around it. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. Okay. How long can y'all survive without water? About three days. If you're, if you're good, five, six. I saw a report of one guy who was locked in jail and they forgot about him. And he survived 18 days. I wouldn't want that record. He's abnormal. But most folks, three days... We're going to start dropping off. Okay? They've gone three days from the Red Sea. They found no water. Not a not little bit of water. 
no water. Right? Now, were they packing some with them when they left? Maybe. They've been gone a little while. It's gone, right? They're, they're, they're getting thirsty. They're getting panicky. They're getting distressed. Understandably so, right? Three days. You got, you got wives. You got little ones crying. Mama, I'm thirsty. You got your, your cows that are following after you. They're lowing because they, they're thirsty and their calves are struggling. This is, this is, there's some panic. And they finally come to some water. But that water was bitter. Okay. You want to have a little bitterness in, in your experience? Think about that. We're without water. Hey, here's some water. Lap, lap, lap. We can't drink it. How do you think their attitude toward God was at that moment? Probably bitter. And so they murmured. Who'd they murmur against? They murmured against Moses. The one they could see. The one they could blame. What shall we drink? We're literally dying of thirst. What are we going to drink? This is not just asking the question of Moses. We, we sure would like something to drink. The, the idea of murmuring here is that, that dissatisfaction. They've been done wrong. They've been led out here to die. What did Moses do? He cried unto the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, which he chunked in the waters. The water became sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance. He told them, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord, God, Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and will keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon, Egypt, upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Okay. You're three days from the Red Sea, where you watched the Lord by his mighty hand and his great mercy deliver you in a way that no one could have predicted. This same God who had promised, I'm going to bring you into a land, and now three days later, you're bitter and ticked off because you're about to die in the wilderness, or so you think. What are you forgetting? That God had promised you to bring him, bring you into his land. He'd promised, in his mercy, to care for you along the way. And you know where the very next pit stop was? An oasis? I mean, like, like a resort. <laughs> you got, it gives you the, there's 12 wells there. And 70 palm trees. I mean, they're, they're going into the sandals, basically, after having been out in the desert... <laughs> You got 12 wells? I mean, 12 wells in the desert, what a plethora of riches. I mean, could you think about, you got a couple million people and cattle, that's a lot of folks you got to water. You just got one well, it's going to be distressing. I mean, so they're right next where God's going to bring them into this really great spot. But do they know that? No. They're bitter. They're complaining. They're disputing. Right? Do they have the whole picture? Do you and I ever have the whole picture? No. But what do we have? We have God's promises and who He is. If He's promised never to leave you or forsake you, you can take that one to the bank. 
You can hold on to that one, and you should, and I should hold on to that one. If His mercies are new every morning, unless Christ comes back, we're going to have another morning tomorrow. And there's going to be a new batch of mercies. Is He going to provide what you need? Yeah. Yes. So they went to a limb. You know what a limb means? Trees. The, the, the names for a lot of these places that deal with the events there. So you got the, the bitter water location. We'll call that bitter. All right, Mara. We're getting over here. We've been in the desert. We've been baking in the sun. We found some trees. And there's 12 wells. So we call it a limb, right? After that, they get into the wilderness of uh, sin. All right. And what happens? Well, you've, you've left Egypt a month ago. All right. So passage of time. You're now about a month on the road. You've run out of food. You, you carried some provisions. You knew it was going to be a walk to Canaan, right? They had everything up on their shoulders. They had their leavening bread, so they couldn't, their leavening boards or whatever, so they couldn't have leavened bread. They, but they left, they brought provisions, and now it's gone, all right? They're only going to be gathering generally out in the desert. Now, I mean, there's, there's a few months or weeks or just rare times in a desert when things bloom and it's pretty, but in general... It's a dirt. There's, there's an absence of food. So now you got a massive body and you got no food. What happens? They get upset. <laughs> really upset. This is chapter 16. They went to a limb. Um, it's the 15th day of the second month. They left on the 15th day of the first month. The whole congregation, the whole congregation murmured against. Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Listen to what they said. The children of Israel said unto him, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots and we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Alright, let's put that in modern day vernacular. We just wish the Lord had killed us back then. We didn't have to walk. At least our bellies were full. We had all the meat we wanted. We had all the bread we wanted. We could eat, you know, be full. Just, just kill us there. That would have been a mercy. You, Moses and Aaron, leader of this here wild camping trip that we've been on a month, <laughs> you brought us out here to kill us. Of starvation. Thanks a lot. Jerks. I'm sure there, it was probably harsher than that. But don't let the King James distort it from that. They, they are really upset. Poor Moses and Aaron. It's hard enough to stand up against a few, but can you imagine, you know, this is a soldiers. We know the head count was 603,000 men of fighting age, 20 years and up, plus their wives and children. This is... This is rough. Okay? What the Lord tell Moses? I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you at a certain amount every day that I may prove them, test them, whether they walk in my law or not. Not only that, he's also going to feed them this time with quail that fell on the camp. 
give us this day our daily bread. That's an allusion back to this. Did he give them a month supply of bread? Or a week supply? Or a 40 year supply? He provided one more day. One more day. One more day. Who are they daily reminded of of their dependence? The Lord. How much food does it take to feed two million people every day for what will amount to 40 years? Except for that first month there, right? So 39 years and 11 months of feeding. I, I don't know. I did some fun math one time and I came up with about 40 dump truck loads per day. Why do invasions into Russia always fail? Logistics. Napoleon, the Germans, they cannot feed their armies and their supply chains stretch that far. It's a massive undertaking for humans, and yet for God, did it every day. You know what God provides for you? Every day? Every day. That what you need. It may not be exactly what it is you want. As we would discover uh, a little bit later, they're going to get to Mount Sinai, and they're going to camp there. Moses is going to go up the mountain. Moses is going to come down the mountain. Moses is going to go back up the mountain. Moses is going to come down the mountain. They're going to have a period where they're building the tabernacle and everything. They're going to get the tabernacle set up. They're going to get the priest installed. Um, they're going to start offering sacrifices. They're going to start doing their counting in numbers. All the way around to the 20th day of the second year since they left. So they've been camped about 11 months straight. They've been stationary. This camping trip's getting long. And they've been being fed every day. You go out there and uh, on where the dew was, you got on top of that, you got little, little ball looking things that they'd go take home. And they'd grind it up and they'd have bread. You know what manna means? What's it? What is it? I don't know. What is it? They didn't know. They'd never seen it before. Right? And if you left it out there too long, the sun would come up uh, high and it'd melt it. And if you tried to hoard it um, the next day, it would breed worms and stink. Except for on the day before the Sabbath, would it give you a two-day supply? The Lord can adjust the expiration dates. <laughs> so now you have been camped out in the wilderness you smell great right you've been there for 11 months stationary at the mountain it's time to go you get on the road we're in numbers chapter 11 by the way if you want to jump over there and what do people start doing complaining You just left. Just left Mount Sinai. The people complained. It displeased the Lord. The Lord heard their complaining. His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. It's a good idea not to be on the fringe. Right? Be plugged into your church. Be in the center. <laughs> Those in the uttermost part of the camp were burned. They called that place Taborah. Um, which word means burning, 
right? Remember that spot where the folks were complaining and they got burned? Yeah, Tabera. Yeah, we remember that spot. First stop after we left Mount Sinai. They go a little bit farther on, and the mixed multitude among them fell to lusting, and the children of Israel wept again. <coughs> Who shall give us flesh to eat? We've been eating this manna stuff for a year straight. I'm tired of it. This dry bread, it's loathsome. Our soul is dried away, right? Those kids may not be old enough to complain about dinner yet. Wait. Right? This ain't what I want to eat. Oh, David's expression. This is not my favorite. Okay? This is not my favorite. And so they start remembering back to the things they used to have. We remember the fish, which we did freely eat in Egypt while you were a slave and your sons were subject to the death penalty. But we had fish and cucumbers and melons, the leeks and onions and garlic. Oh, there was some flavoring, right? But our soul is now dried away. There's nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And it goes on to describe how they gathered it. And Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, right? They weren't just in the tent complaining to each other. This is, we're going to come out on the front porch. We're complaining to our neighbors. Yeah, tired of this food. I want some meats. Right? <laughs> so what does Moses do? Does he set a great example? No, y'all. We put Moses up on a pedestal. Moses was a man. Like you and I, and here he makes a really bad call. He starts popping off at God. He starts murmuring and disputing. They're murmuring and disputing to each other, and God's indirectly the one who's being targeted. Moses just goes straight to him. God, why have you afflicted your servant like this? Paraphrasing, y'all read the exact language. Why have I not found favor in your sight that you laid the burden of all this people upon me? He's got the mully grubs, right? I got all this people that I'm supposed to be leading on this camping trip here, going to the new promised land, and the burden all rests on my shoulders. Is the burden really on Moses' <coughs> shoulders? Who's carrying the people? God. Okay, uh, who, who, what's Moses forgotten, right? Then he goes a little bit farther. Have I conceived all these people? Am I their daddy? <laughs> that I have to carry them like I'm carrying, you know, you ever gone on a hiking trip with, uh, with toddlers, right? What do you do? You tote them. Little legs get worn out, you carry it. Well, he's like, have I carried, do I have to carry all these people like a sucking child? Am I their father? Where am I going to get flesh for these people? They're all saying, we want the meats. Where's the meats? Where am I going to get it? Right? I'm not able to bear all these people alone. It's too heavy for me. Okay, here's where it really gets crossing some lines. If you deal thus with me, just go ahead and kill me. If I found any favor in your sight, obviously I'm not in your favor because of the burden I've got on me, but if I got any favor left, just go ahead and take me out. Motor sound a little discouraged, a little murmuring and complaining here. 
So what does the Lord do? The Lord says, you go gather 70 men that you know are elders among you. You take them to the tabernacle. I'm going to take some of the spirit that's been put upon you and put it upon them, and they're going to help you with the administration of this. And as for the people, I've, I've heard them. They want flesh. They complained, saying, who's going to give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Y'all ever get distorted memories? Thinking about, oh, it was so good back in such and such. I'd rather go back there. You forget all the, the pain and suffering, the grotesqueness. So the Lord says, I'll give you flesh. Not just one day's worth, nor two, nor five, nor ten, nor twenty. God's going to prove a point here. I'm going to send you enough for a 30-day supply for every person. So much so that it's going to come out your nostrils. That's Bible language. But a whole month until it come out your nostrils and be loathsome unto you because ye have despised the Lord which is among you and have wept before him saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? What are you doing when you're murmuring and complaining? You're despising God. The things that He has given and you're rejecting, you're saying it's not worthy, the promises that you're still waiting to receive. And you're complaining about something to go back, to go back before. Now Moses, does he say, well that sounds great, Lord, I trust you, you're going to do a good job. No, he's still in a bit of a funk. He says, there's 600,000 footmen. How? How can, how can I? Yeah. Thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain to suffice them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together to suffice them? He said, Lord, if we killed every animal we've got, we couldn't feed everybody for a month. Shall all the fish of the sea... you got a little hyperbole going on there, right? If all the fish of the sea you gather together, could that feed them? What does the Lord answer? Verse 23, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Modern vernacular. Um, has God gotten too weak? Do you act and do I act like God is too weak? Like He cannot fulfill what He's promised to fulfill. Now, paraphrase, if you've been with us on our Wednesday night Bible study, I've been having fun with PowerPoint, and so at this point, you'd have a bunch of quails blown in with a sound effect of wind going, shh. <laughs> All right, how much quail does he send? The first batch landed in the camp. Here we are nearly a year later. It says this one was around the camp, a day's journey that way, and that way, and that way, and that way. I don't know how big the camp was, but got a couple million people together. That's going to take up a pretty good footprint, right? And how far can you walk in a day? I'm pretty lazy, but I could probably make it 10 miles. And I imagine back then when they did a lot more foot pedaling, they could go a lot farther. But let's just use a conservative estimate of 10 miles. You hollow out a donut for the camp, and then 10 miles around it, say that camp's a mile and a half across, you still got 400 square miles of surface area. So guess what? 
It ain't a flat layer of quails. It says it was two, two cubits. That's about three feet. That means Elizabeth Grace would be completely buried. That means David would have about his forehead sticking out. And Patrick may have his neck. For 400 square miles. Again, a conservative estimate. As a day's journey. Right? I found a study that talked about the average volume of a particular kind of quail. And this number doesn't matter. I could be off by a great deal. But to give you a bit of a scale... For this study, it said, you know, average about 170 cubic centimeters for a quail. If you divide that out on that volume, you're talking about 6 billion quail. <laughs> Is God proving a point? Is his arm too short? Not a chance. Now, that's that had a lot of assumptions, right? Well, it told us that the guy who gathered the least, because they went out to pick up quail all that day and all that night, and all the next day. So you got about 36 hours of just picking them up. Right? It says the guy who gathered least gathered 10 homers. Okay, well, how much is a homer? Well, if you look over in Ezekiel, you can send, well, there are 10 ephahs in a homer. Okay. How much is an ephah? Well, if you're back at your manna conversation, um, back in Exodus chapter 16, it says that there are 10 omers, no H, in an ephah. So if you convert your units, 10 times 10 times 10, you'll have the guy who gathered the least gathered a thousand omers of quail. You say, well, that, Brother John, that doesn't really help me anything. Do you know how much a day's ration was? One omer. So the guy who picked up the least gathered a thousand days supply of quail. Multiply that by 600,000 footmen. <laughs> 600 million days rations in quail. Is God's arm short? Is he able to prove a point? Yeah. You know what they named that place where they were at? Kibroth Hataba. It means graves of the lusters. Because they had gotten their first bite, cleaned their teeth. Because before they even chewed, and God sent a great plague among them, and a whole bunch of them died, and there they buried them. Those that were lusting after something that God, they felt like they needed, they wanted, but God hadn't given to them. And so he, he, he destroyed us. Kibroth had us. So there they buried the lusters. All right? So they were seeking those pleasures of the old world. Right? Don't get that Egypt is a type for the world, for the pleasures of sin. Right? Moses. He could have grown up and stayed in Pharaoh's house and could have enjoyed the pleasures of sin for a season, right? But instead, by faith, he <coughs> walked away for that. And for Christ's sake, he was counted among his own. He led them. He endured hardship, right? And like Moses and uh, like Abraham, was looking for a better city, right? So here you've got the children of Israel who've been brought out of bondage, brought out of misery. And what are they looking back for? Man, it would have been better if God hadn't have brought us out. We had all those pleasures and things that we re used to really enjoy. <coughs> well, what happens next? They go on. There's a couple other speed bumps. For sake of time, we'll jump over those. 
They get to the edge of the land. This is the promised land. This is the one that God said, I'm going to bring you in. They get there. What do they do? They send out 12 spies. They spend 40 days scoping it out. Is the land good? Yes, you better believe it. Right? This is not just you know bare land. This is not you ain't got to go clear the trees and then prepare the fields and then plant and then hope that it's good soil. Right? No, the vineyards are there. You know the farms are there. The towns are there. And God said, "I'm going to give it all to you, prepared." Right? But the spies come back and they're like, um, "It's good land, but it's occupied." Uh, there are the sons of Anak there, and I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with Anak, but he was a big dude, right? Descendants of giants. You had um, Goliath. He, we said he was six cubits in a span. Cubits about 18 inches. He's about nine feet tall. All right. I don't know if y'all have looked at pictures of the tallest person uh, currently alive or last that they have photos of. I mean, he's eight something. He's a big guy. Like, I, like waist level. Okay. And. The the, uh, the the spies are like, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. Again, hyperbole here, but still, you get the idea. They're big, they're strong, and oh yeah, they've got strong cities, right? This is not just they're out camping on the land and they got tents and we can do it, right? We've got 600,000 men as an invading force. We can't do it. We can't beat them. Whose might were they looking at? Right, their own. They were looking at... Their military might. We've got 603,000 fighting men. Can't do it. <laughs> How do they get out of Egypt? God's might. God's power. Who promised he's going to bring them in? God. And what are they forgetting throughout this trip? God, right? What do we so for quickly forget? Right. And so all the congregation, they're persuaded. I mean, there's two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, who gave the good report saying, come on, we can go up. We can do it. If God delights in us, we can go in. They're bread for us. I like that imagery. That's pretty good. Those enemies, they're like a roll. Oh, Charlie's, man. I can go through some, go through some bread, though, Charlie's. Does that bread, oh, Charlie's, stand any chance? No, it's just bread. I'm going to eat it. Right? That's, that, was, that was Joshua's. <laughs> right? That was it. But how does the, the people react? They start picking up stones. They say, now we're going to stone you. They murmur. This is in Numbers 14, verse 2. They, all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said, Would to God we had died in the land of Egypt. Yeah, that would have been great if God had just killed us in Egypt and saved us the trip. Or, would to God we died in the wilderness. You know, we've had some losses along this caravan, you know. Oregon Trail, so-and-so died of a snake bite. Well, you got the plague, Barrett, Kibroth, Hadaba, and they have a bunch of dies. It would have been better if we just died then. Popping off. Why hath the Lord brought us unto this land, not into the land, they're at the edge, to fall by the sword that our wives and children should be prey? If we go in there, that God who brought us here is going to allow us all to be killed in battle, and our pretty wives and children are going to be taken as slaves. It's a pretty strong language. Right? They're openly, they're not just, you know, they're, they're popping off to Moses and Aaron, but they're, they're openly rebelling against God here, right? 
were it not better for us to return into Egypt? You know what? It's not too late. Forget this. This is too hard. I vote we pick a new captain. Moses and Aaron not doing so good. We need an election. We're going to turn around. Pick a captain to return. All right. And y'all know how the Lord responds. Well, first he says, back away, Moses. I'm going to kill them all. We're going to start over. Moses says, oh, you know, you, you promised that you were going to bring them into your land. Don't have the Egyptians or those think that you're not strong enough to do that. So don't kill them. The Lord says, okay. But all these guys who've seen my glory in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened unto my voice. That tempting involves ignoring God, not listening, right? says, they're not going to see the land. Turn around. Go back to the wilderness. You're going to wander for a total of 40 years. Right? One for every day that they were spent spying out the land. Spent 40 days like looking at the land, 40 days in the wilderness. Now, they're already about two days in, <coughs> two years in into this camping trip, so they're going to get time served. It's going to be 38 more years for your total of, of 40. All right, but they're going to die. And oh, yeah, those 10 spies who gave the bad report, right then. Okay. Murmuring. And complaining, murmuring and complaining. You, you, we noticing this pattern, All right? Somewhere in that thirty-eight year interval, you're going to have in Numbers chapter sixteen the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, who they wanted to be the priests. So we 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 should be in charge, right? Moses and Aaron, you really took this upon yourself. You don't have the right. We're all holy, um, and the Lord dealt with them, right? He had the earth open up, swallow up the tents of the ringleaders, along with their families and children and all their cattle. And then it closed back upon them. And then they also had some cohorts that were with them, 250 princes who were famous among the congregation, the popular kids, right? They wanted to have some power too, and so the priests apparently have power in this structure. Um, and fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. I say all that very quickly because who destroyed those princes and who destroyed those ringleaders? God, right? Miraculous way. Earth opening up. Did Moses have anything to do with that? Fire coming out from the Lord, burning them up. It's not like he went over there and beat them to death with a stick. But the next day, on the morrow, the very next day, all the congregation, this is Numbers chapter 16, verse 41, on the morrow, all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You've killed the people of the Lord! You, Moses, Aaron, you killed them. We don't like this. Now the glory of the Lord appears and the Lord tells Moses you get away from this congregation. I want to wipe them all out. And Moses tells Aaron you go get a censer and you go hightail it boy. There's a plague coming. Um, and you go get in front of it. And so he runs and on this hand he's got the folks who've already dropped dead and he's got his censer and those over here still survive. But you know 14,700 die of murmuring against God and against his his uh, leaders there blaming them for God's righteous judgment, justice. Like God was picking who was he, who would he authorize to be, um, you know, a priest and come before him. All right. Fast forward. We're covering a lot of years here to that final year. All right. We're in year forty, close to it. Numbers chapter twenty. Miriam. Moses' older sister, she dies. Um, they're in the desert of Zin again, near Kadesh. 
Kadesh is the same location where they had sent the spies out. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode. All right, what's chode? To grapple with. To hold a controversy. I don't know if they were physically shaking him, but, you know, that's the idea. Right? They chode when there's no water. Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. It would have been better if a fire from the Lord came out and roasted us with those other jokers. Do we sometimes say things that are foolish? Mm. Yeah. That studying to be quiet is important. <laughs> Why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? So they identify this congregation of being of the Lord, but they're blaming Moses and Aaron for where they're at. We're all just going to die here. Who's been providing for them every day for this 40-year camping trip? God. And somehow, they're able to forget that. And you and I somehow are able to forget every day of daily mercy and deliverances that have incurred our entire life up until today when something doesn't go our way. Now, God tells Moses, you speak to the rock. Speak. But Moses, rather than honoring God, decides he's going to pop off back at the people. He popped off at God a good bit earlier. Now he's going to chode back. Chide Numbers 10 through 13. Moses and Aaron gathered the people before the rock, and he said, Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And he lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the beast also. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, and says, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me, in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. He told them, you speak to the rock. Who gets the credit on that miracle? Right? It focuses on God. God is yet again providing for your needs. And this is not going to be a small trickle coming out of the rock. I mean, think fire hydrant level. You've got to have a lake to, to water this crowd. Right? But rather than making it about God and God's deliverance and God answering their need, who did he make it about? Himself. Must we fetch rocks, you rebels? Mm-hmm. All right. Briefly. That's your background. <laughs> I want you to think about this journey of Israel as a picture for your life as a follower of Christ. When you were dead and in sins, a miracle happened. A washing of regeneration, like coming through that Red Sea, you were baptized into something that was bigger than you. You were created a new creature. You were delivered from the bondage of sin. You had been a slave to it. That's all you'd known or wanted, and now you've been released. And God is carrying you through this desert because guess what this entire life that we're living this is the desert this is not 
the promise. All right? The land that He's promised isn't in this world. You're not to set down your tent stakes and say, all right, this is it, we've arrived. It doesn't get any better than this. All right? This whole journey of going to be to that city where God has built, He's the builder and maker of it, that's where we're going. That's the picture I want you to see. All right? So you've been delivered from bondage. You're a slave to sin. Egypt and all that that points to. You were delivered out of it. You're now on your, your Christian walk and you're following the Lord on this journey to the promised land, looking to Jesus, author and finisher of your faith. And then something goes wrong. Something that you don't think is fair. Something about the expectation of this journey that was not in the program. Right? The travel brochure, whatever it is that you were expecting to receive on this trip, it's not going the exact way that you would expect it. And what do you do? And what do I do? Again, these are my toes as much as yours. We tend to get upset and murmur and complain against the one who's leading us. Who's caring for us? Who's guiding us? Now, this could be something silly. Something about you know, an inconvenience. It could be the way is too steep. The way is too flat. The way is too slippery. The way is whatever it is. It's not the way that I want it. And therefore, God, you and I have a problem. And you may not say that out loud. But if the bulk of what comes out of your conversation among your brothers and sisters, among your co-workers or whatever, it's gripes and complains and gripes and complains. Who are you really complaining about, whether you want to think about it or not? You're complaining about God and how He is providing for you and caring for you and the path that He's choosing in this life. All right? So sometimes it's just an you know, inconvenience level, right? Say your kids are sick all week. <laughs> right? And you pop off. Sometimes it's really dire circumstances. You know, it's that three days, you got no water, you're scared. It could be rather than the child is sick all week, of, you, you discover one of your children have cancer. Or a parent or an aunt or someone said something very, very serious is going on. And rather than leaning in and trusting God and looking to Him, you get angry and you get bitter. And you get upset because this is not going the way that I would prefer it to go. We could be praying for deliverance. We could be praying for mercy. We could be praying for grace. But instead we're just angry. How could God do this to me? Say They had some bold language for God. We use some bold, irreverent language towards God. How about those quails? Right? Do we ever look back at that life of sin that we had and say, man, I really would like that thing over there. That was pretty good. Do we ever try and have a feet in both, both camps, right? The camp of the Lord and yet, oh, there's the world over there. And, ah, oh, that's, that's pretty nice. I sure would like that. You know, this, this walk with the Lord, it's, it's a little dry. Lusting after the things of the world 
while despising the goodness of God. Is he providing for you? Absolutely. Is he giving you what you need? Yes. Has he promised to leave you? He's never going to leave you. Is he going to bring you to where you will be where everything is infinitely better than any of the shiny stuff over there in Egypt? No. We've got to recalibrate. When we start craving the stuff from Egypt, the stuff of this world, y'all, we're chasing the fool's gold. There's nothing of real value there. The inverse from that is obviously learning contentment. Wherever I'm at, let me be content. If the Lord has raised me up or lowered me down, so the season of thanksgiving, right? Murmuring and complaining is the exact opposite. Right? It's looking at what you don't have and popping off in God about it. Or popping off to your friends about it. Rather than being content and expressing thanks for what He has done. How about this? Do you ever argue with God's faithful messengers? The ones who are showing you truth from God's word when you don't want to hear it. You ever left the church angry with the pastor? Not because he did anything wrong, but he told something you didn't want to hear? You ever been angry with mama and daddy? Because they said something you didn't want to hear? Truth from God's word. Right? That can be anyone in that relationship, mentors, older sisters, younger sisters, wherever it is. We can have a blame that we point on somebody who they're being a faithful friend. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's someone who will tell you the hard truth. The flatterer, well, that's the yes man. Oh, you want to do that? Yeah, go for it. Live your best life, do you. I don't think that will glorify God. All right. So that's like what those people were blaming Moses, using him as a scapegoat. Or back at, uh, after Korah's rebellion, when they're blaming him the second time, it's after the Lord has chastened them. They did the thing they weren't supposed to do, and the Lord in his love has now brought chastening upon them. If the Lord ever chastens you, congratulations, he loves you. But this is getting angry at that guy who told you the truth on the front end. Or how about when they were at Kadesh Barnea, they're at the edge of the land. Do you ever get to the edge, knowing what you're supposed to do, refuse to follow through, and then get upset at God with the consequences? This is that failure to do the right thing. Right? To he who knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Sometimes we know when the Lord's telling us to do something. Sometimes it's pretty clear. And when we fail to do it, there's consequences about that. And often, we'll get bitter about those consequences. Or how about a leader? Do they ever lack patience with those that they're leading? Parents? Pastors, teachers, any role. We are to be mindful of the weak. Spiritually weak, physically weak, whatever. 
part of our role, whatever form of leading you are, is recognizing where people are at. Continue to speak the truth. Continue to set a good example. But don't beat the sheep over the head with a stick. Right? That's not our job. Murmuring and complaining and having a bad attitude doesn't glorify God. That's what Moses got into there at that end when he was popping off about smiting the rock. He made it about him. So, how do you speak to God in your prayers? Do you complain to Him directly? Sometimes you do. You may not think about it in those terms. Sometimes you do. Or maybe you just complain indirectly. Through clenched teeth, under your breath, muttering. When we complain to God about God, about our situation, we're saying that God's done us wrong. Will our just and righteous and holy God do us wrong? Not a chance. Will we understand all that He does? Also not a chance. I heard someone tell me recently, it's just been sticking in my head, but it didn't tell us to understand and then obey. They to trust and obey. Right. Read Philippians two fourteen one more time. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. God's called you to do something. How you do it matters. Y'all ever had your parents tell you to go clean your room and you do one of these? Fine! <laughs> would not be a good example. <laughs> and yet how begrudgingly and with a sorry attitude do we sometimes obey God? Well, I did it. Yeah, ish. Do all things. Right? The previous verse talked about uh, obeying. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Living out what you know to be right and true, live it out, obeying, but doing all of it without murmuring and complaining, murmuring and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless, not, not worthy of blame and not causing harm, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain and neither labored in vain. <coughs> so this, this, this Thanksgiving season, which, come on, that shouldn't be a season. That should be every day. You have been infinitely blessed. 
If you sat down and just started counting your blessings and didn't get up until you were done, until they were all done, you wouldn't get up. Right? So my challenge to you is open your eyes to acknowledge what God has done and does do for you and encourage you to be content and grateful to acknowledge it and to live lives that glorify Him through that contentment and thanksgiving rather than being the Facebook sourpuss, right? Y'all know, I mean, there's whole groups here in Tifton about ranting and raving, and all it is is rants. Stay out of those things. It's not going to glorify anybody, right? Your demeanor as a child of God and how you serve and what you say is supposed to build up, right? Words that come out of your mouth should be seasoned with salt and grace, edifying those around you. And when you're doing that, do you know who you're glorifying? God. So let's live it out. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Anybody have a number you'd like to send in closing? 398. 398?